0: podcast is part
1: of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Pitchside with Toby Reynolds, a Sports Gazette podcast where each week we take a deep dive into a new sporting topic with a new guest. I'm your host Toby Reynolds and this week I'll be joined by Johnny Coffee to discuss post-colonial African football and how it's changed from the 1950s up until now. Johnny is the football editor at the Sports Gazette and is leading our Africa Cup of Nations coverage over the next few weeks, including the All Things AFCON podcast and his weekly AFCON archives column. Throughout this episode, we look all the way back at the first African Cup of Nations and African football in the 1960s and 70s, as well as how it's developed since and will continue to develop into the future. Johnny, let's just talk a little about AFCON this year. Um, obviously, the Sports Gazette has great coverage of, of AFCON, I'm doing some weekly podcasts and, and talking a lot about it. How excited are you for the Africa Cup of Nations?
0: Yeah, I'm buzzing for it, to be honest. I think doing a lot of the preview content has really got me uh, ready to enjoy what well, is always a, a really good tournament. I think, I mean, a lot of the focus can sometimes be on like how it affects Premier League clubs, but I think... We have to recognise that it's, you know, it's a it's a massive honour for these players to go and represent their nations.
1: And it's a great tournament to watch uh, every two years. Absolutely. The AFCON started back in the, the 50s. Egypt won the the first one, I'm, I think I'm right in saying. And it's sort of basically not looked back since. They've been been a really good tournament. As you mentioned, though, it almost always clashes with the Premier League. Um, and that's quite a big debate, particularly in England. We almost know Afcon more for for the lack of the the top African players in the Premier League than than anything else. Do you think that the, over the sort of past what sixty years that Afcon's been going for that it's it's developed in a way that's trying to put a put itself out on its own and and be its own competition and not worry so much about the rest of global football, or, or do you think it's doing quite a good job of integrating it around the rest of the sort of global calendar?
0: I think really Afcon just wants to be recognised as a prestigious continental tournament in the same way, for example, the European Championships are or, or the Copa America is. And in terms of the football calendar, the way it is it is kind of scheduled around Europe. So we obviously in the UK um, have, have the privilege of watching games at reasonable hours because we live in the UK time zone and the calendar works for us in terms of weather and other considerations like that. So I think, you know, AFCON doesn't feel the need to just operate on, on the terms of what's right for Western football. Um, I think it feels that it's a, it's a very prestigious tournament in its own right. And if the playing conditions are going to be better in the winter, or if their viewership's going to be better in the
1: winter, then, then why not hold it in, in January? Yeah, no, I think that the European Championships were the same time time frame. I think it would get a lot more respect throughout, and it's probably more of a um, of a sort of divide, almost sort of an Africa versus Europe and a, a continental difference. I've uh, your dissertation obviously was on African football, sort of post colonial, um, in the sort of sixties and seventies. Talked a lot about Nigeria and Ghana, who are two of the 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 best and the most successful teams throughout. Um, Afcon with Nigeria winning three and, and Ghana winning four of um, of the Africa Cup of Nations. Ghana were probably the most dominant side in the in the early stages of of Afcon. They won in 1963 and 1965, and it was sort of all built around their their president and um who absolutely loves football. Um, sort of invited the Gal- uh, well, what, what would have been the Galacticos, but the sort of 1960s Real Madrid side to come over and, and play against them and absolutely loved football and, and really sort of used it to try and progress his political uh, messaging and, and everything. And it all went wrong a bit later on when he was ousted in 66. But for those sort of few years up to it, Ghana were such a dominant footballing side. Do you think that because they're sort of, they were a new um, African nation, newly created, um, that actually it works really well throughout um, throughout their politics that they could sort of almost all get behind this footballing nation?
0: Yeah, I think there's there's senses in, in which it worked and there's senses in which it was less successful. I think Nkrumah is an interesting one because there's a little bit of debate about how much he actually felt passionate about football, how much of a sportsman he actually was and whether it was maybe a bit of opportunism. But certainly I think you have this challenge of becoming an independent nation and trying to get everyone behind this political project. And I think football plays a really important role in the way that he does that. Um, I'd say from the national team perspective, it's very successful. He supports uh, the the Black Stars, both symbolically, financially. And I think you do see the nation really rally behind that team. You can see it in, in the newspapers of the day. And that kind of spans um, all across the nation. So you have newspapers which wouldn't be that sympathetic to the regime, but would be supportive of the Black Stars. So I think that's quite a good indication of the success of the national team, I'd say there's a bit of a contrast in terms of club football, because I think club football kind of articulates the difficulties in bringing a nation together rather than overcoming those difficulties. So you have this club called uh, Real Republicans, which are founded essentially at the behest of Nkrumah to be this leading Ghanaian club. That he wants them to be the premier club in the nation, in the continent but they actually are extremely unpopular because the way it works is that they draft two of the best players from all of Ghana's clubs. And obviously the fan bases are not going to be that happy about that. You know, if you did it in the Premier League today, I don't think, for example, I'm an Arsenal fan. I wouldn't be buzzing to see Declan Rice and Saliba go and play for a real Republicans GB or something like that. I don't know. Um, But essentially that riles a lot of fans and it gets brought into these debates on regionalism and kind of ethnic tensions. So there's, for example, the the Ashanti region who feel very disconnected from the central government. They feel like they've been kind of slighted since about, well, it's quite, it got quite a long history, but especially by Nkrumah, they feel like they've been slighted since the early 1950s. Um, so they certainly are less sympathetic to real Republicans and very, very, actually quite vehemently hostile to the club in its short existence. And it's it's not really popular anywhere. Um, The two popular clubs remain uh, Accra Hearts of Oak, and uh, Asante Kotoko. So those remain the two big clubs in in, uh, Ghana, and, and the two clubs that attract the most fans, whereas Real Republicans, even though they do end up being quite a good team, they don't really capture people's hearts. And if anything, they... They actually inflame
1: these underlying tensions within the the early post-colonial nation. Do do you think because, as you mentioned, the real Republicans were created in nineteen sixty one, and then Ghana went on to win sort of two Africa Cup of Nations sort of the following years in sixty three and sixty five, that it was almost trying to be more of a global power play from Nkrumah? or do you think it was that actually they the Ghana football team actually improved over those few years? with the help of the real Republicans sort of starting out?
0: I think Republicans could have been helpful in the sense that you have a lot of the best players from your nation playing together. Um, So I guess it could be helpful from that point of view. I think the seriousness with which football is treated in Ghana plays a big role. I think Nigeria is a very good contrast here because in Nigeria you only have a functioning National League by 1972. That's not the case in Ghana. In Ghana you've got a well-established league in which the teams are competitive. There's some established, strong teams where you're going to draw the majority of your, your national players from. So I think that is that is massive. Um, and also having, I guess, the financial incentives for players to do well uh, could be a big factor as well. So I think the seriousness with which N- Nkrumah treats football is really important to those successes. Obviously, they are the successes of the players. The players win them. But you have to look at that background of football is being nurtured in Ghana, whereas in Nigeria at this time, there's the opposite. You know, football is developing very slowly. They're being repeatedly humiliated by this Ghana team, which they don't like um, at all. And you see Nigeria's footballing development come about a decade later than Ghana's. And I think Nkrumah is, and and his sports minister, Henny Jan, as well, Very influential. I think those two are really important to telling the story of
1: of those triumphs. As you mentioned, there, their stories almost start and end in the same place where Ghana win all of their Africa Cup nations before 1982. Nigeria win their first in 1980. Nigeria obviously had quite a quite a big civil war in the sort of 70s, um, leading up to sort of the, the redevelopment of the country. Whereas Ghana had their well Nkrumah was overthrown in 66 um, and they almost then have to to restart from there and and you can almost argue that was where their football sort of prowess began to tail off I guess do you think that because Nigeria's football developed much later than Ghana they're in a much better position looking forward to the future
0: possibly I think I think I mean both sides in the last 30 years have been consistently in and around the best teams in Africa I think Nigeria was more. There was something holding them back, and then that went away, and that now they can move towards fulfilling their potential. I think Ghana, Nkrumah's sporting project was the height of it in in post-colonial Ghana, and and his successor General Ankara didn't. He he tried to gain the same thing symbolically from sport. He tried to use sport to enhance his image and like convey his authority, but he certainly didn't vest as much money or or time into developing sport but I think going into for example this AFCON both teams have some of the most talented players in Africa and I think that's just because they now both have that that strong footballing culture, footballing history uh, that they can both draw upon so I think you know Ghana and Nigeria they'll always be mentioned as as names in, in contention for the AFCON almost every edition we go into I think Nigeria probably have the better chance to win it this time out, obviously
1: with a, a plethora of of attacking talent, to say the least. I guess, yeah, as you mentioned there, Ghana a few years ago, Michael Essien, players like that were obviously still quite dominant as well. As you sort of talking about there, the Nigerian attack in particular is what everyone's been talking about for this current AFCON. They have, what, six or seven basically world-class elite strikers a lot of African players have been snubbed in the last sort of, well, f- forever basically within footballing terms. And it's not really until the last maybe sort of five years, maybe 10 years, um, where so many African players have have really been considered on that world-class level. You look at George Ware in 95, won the Ballon d'Or. There were then no other African sort of nominees in the top three until uh, Sadio Mane last year where he came second. Do you think that this is almost now the beginning of an African resurgence that they've had sort of so long on the periphery and you saw um, Morocco made it to the the semi-finals of the World Cup last year as well, that this is almost where it's going to grow?
0: Yeah, I think um, Morocco is was a huge moment. Um, if you look at the way it was reported in African papers, it is kind of talked about as this moment in which the glass ceiling is shattered um, and very much there is the hope now that an African nation can win the World Cup, which I think would be a a historic moment, to say the least. I think in terms of um, African players, you know, the Premier League, African talent has always been quite prominent. Um, Think back to kind of Mourinho's Chelsea. There's a a big African contingent in that. And in recent history, obviously, you have Mane, Salah, Marez, Yaya Torre, some of the i mean best players in in recent premier league history and all of them hailing from african nations i think the thing i'm most interested to see change and develop is probably at a scouting level because i think there there definitely remains these conceptions about what kind of players you can get from africa i think the belief is like if you're scouting in africa you're looking for raw talent you're looking for people with who can be described as pacey or physical um, and I think as those kind of stereotypes fade a little bit, and some African players who maybe have been miscoached in the past or misprofiled, maybe they' people look at their their physical attributes when in fact they they read the game really well and they could play maybe higher up the field or in the number eight, but they're moved to the number six or whatever. I think I'd be interested in to see how, as maybe some of these stereotypes, as as maybe some of these. Perceived boundaries about what African players can do start to fall? What are we going to see then? Uh, what's going to happen from that? And how many, how many more African players are going to be
1: considered world class? Do you think that African players, like pretty much every player, will have to move to Europe to be considered world class in the future? Because if you look back, we talked about the real Republicans, but but the national teams, the Black Stars played Real Madrid, as we already said. They they drew three all back in 1962. And in the same year, the Green Eagles drew two or with Santos, which sort of was Pele's team, effectively. And you look back and they obviously were were very good back in the sort of 60s and had, had good sides. But however long in, in footballing terms, players have almost always had to move to Europe to reach that sort of top level as it's almost considered by journalists, well, particularly European journalists.
0: Yeah, I think um, there's always going to be the sense in which money talks, you know. I mean, obviously you have the emergence of the Saudi league, which could be transformative in that respect, but the money is in Europe and the best players go and play for the most amount of money. Um, and whilst that allure is there, I think these players are always going to make that jump across to Europe. Um, and those clubs are going to be the most respected because they have the most world-class players. They play in the most viewed club club competitions so the Champions League Premier League I mean it is something that I'd, I'd, I'd like to see change I think like it would be very beneficial for strong domestic leagues to be a viable option to spend your whole career at but I think um, it would take quite a radical change um, for that to become the norm I think I think for I, th- I think the thing that I could see changing it would maybe be the Saudi League, but I think for the foreseeable future, we're still looking at African domestic leagues being a, a launching pad for African talent rather than being where that talent is fully realised. Uh, which is which is a shame, I think.
1: I mean, yeah, maybe in the future, who knows what'll happen? But as you say, yeah, it could take quite a long time for for the sort of the situation to change around that. Money is obviously a huge huge factor there. I was having a look at sort of all the teams who have won AFCON and and how their sort of GDP line up, which is effectively the same thing. And all of the teams who have won AFCON, except I think Ethiopia, are all in the top 20 GDPs um, of of African countries. Um, I mean, you look at World Cups as well and, and Euro- European championships, and it's basically the same where you have to basically have a certain wealth other than Uruguay, who won the World Cups back in the, what's sort the of 40s and, and 30s everyone was in the sort of top 20 of of global GDPs as well. Do you think that as Africa continues to grow and, and Nigeria in particular, um, who have sort of in the top 40 um, richest countries in the world, uh, alongside Egypt, I think as well, that they might be able to keep growing as footballing nations? Do you think those two, as sort of the richest countries, will be the two that will continue to progress over the next sort of 10, 20 years of African football?
0: Yeah, I think uh, economic uh, also, political stability I would I'd point to as a big factor, have a have a big bearing on how much talent can come through and also where that talent goes. I think if you go to some of the, the lower GDP nations, some of the nations where the, the political situation is a bit less secure, I think you'll see young talented players leaving earlier as well. Um, but yeah, I think in terms of... I'd throw maybe Tunisia in there as well as like a an African nation who, whose relative political and economic stability supports them being a very consistent footballing nation. I think, I mean there's, there's always the Africa is huge, Nigeria is huge, Egypt is huge both in terms of population and in terms of like geographical scale and you have to think that I mean the talent that these nations have produced as well like you always have to think that the only way is up. And I think that's that's what people have been saying for a long time. I think it's becoming more and more, getting closer and closer to that point, but you do still feel that there's untapped potential. Like these, these nations have rich footballing history, produced fantastic athletes across a number of sports. And I do think um, certainly, you know, there's no reason an african nation shouldn't win the world cup in the next 2 or 3 decades and i'd be i'd be very excited to see that i think it would be i think it would be a real crowning moment and i think it would once you have that kind of sense that oh this can be done i think that belief could carry other teams to deep world cup runs and really kind of competing
1: at the highest the highest level on a on a global stage I mean that in itself would probably keep pushing Africans' football further forward as well. If they sort of know they've won a World Cup, they go on to play better, and then they win more World Cups, and it's sort of an endless cycle of of growth, which would be fantastic to see as well. Um, we've talked about Nigeria a little bit as well, but mainly the men's side. The women's team, on the other hand, are the most dominant African team ever. They've won eleven titles out of a possible fourteen since the tournament began in in nineteen ninety one, and have just basically put every other African team men's and women's t- to shame really how how good are they as a side?
0: Yeah they've just been crazily dominant uh, on the continent I think uh, certainly in the coming years it'll be interesting to see if that dominance stays put obviously they didn't win the most recent women's Afcon. that was actually South Africa who won that uh, Morocco are another women's team on the up and I think yeah, for them to have hit the ground running and just kept it so consistently across i mean uh going on uh, 20 20 30 years now um is a, an unbelievable achievement i think especially in the context of the the fact that women's football has not really been that well nurtured um at least from an organizational institutional standpoint in in Nigeria um i think they've done it in the face of A federation that doesn't always give them the respect they deserve, doesn't always fulfill its financial obligations to them. And I think that only kind of compounds the fact that this is a remarkable set of players across a number of generations who have really kind of put Nigeria's name on on the the world map in terms of women's football. I think at the most recent World Cup, uh, obviously they went out on penalties to England, but... They, they probably deserved to win that game. I thought they were the better sides. Um, and yeah, very unlucky to not have progressed further in that World Cup. How did they become such a good nation and couldn't other teams look to follow them? In terms of Nigeria's women's team, I think it is the fact that despite uh, this ban on, on women's football introduced by the NFA in, in 1950, they just kept playing football. Um, and it couldn't be on any NFA own ground, according to the ban. So they played on school grounds. They played in parks where they could find it. Um, and I think it is just that that fact that despite the ban, you still had a lot of girls growing up, playing football, playing in teams, travelling to other cities to play in spite of this ban. And I think that set them up well to then go in and start flying when, when the tournaments came. They also recruited um, athletes from other sports. So you had in the first the first kind of AFCON-winning uh, super Falcons. You had people with backgrounds in uh, in handball, in athletics. So that's another source of strength. Um, and I think, yeah, I think it will be interesting in the coming years because Nigeria was maybe ahead of the curve in terms of being in a better position to start competing and contending in, in 1991. Um, whereas now you have a lot more African nations where, there is a bit more of an active um, push towards supporting women's football. I think Morocco is a good example of a, a nation that have really put thought um, and money into how they're going to grow women's football. I think, I mean, the Super Falcons, I think they will continue to be one of the best teams on the continent, but I don't think they will replicate the dominance they've shown over the previous 30 years in the
1: the forthcoming 30 years. Moving on then to sort of final final few questions, Johnny. What do you think the the biggest challenge is for African football over the next sort of few decades? They've obviously started to progress hugely over the last few years. Do you think it's just keeping that going? Yeah, I think we're not we're not fully there, but I think African
0: football is very much on the way to getting the respect it deserves. Um as I as I mentioned, I think one of the, the key things I'm I'm looking for is seeing Uh, African players deployed in um, a wider variety of roles seeing a wider variety of skills being recognised from African players I think that could have transformative effects but I think it is just a gradual process of, of keeping at it I think changes in the media as well could be quite influential in terms of again those getting rid of those kind of repeated lazy analysis of Oh, this player is good because he's pacey. He's raw, um, that kind of thing, and also just giving tournaments like Afcon the respect they deserve. Obviously, it is relevant information that you know Premier League players will be missing, but that shouldn't be the only coverage that the tournament is given. It's a a tournament in its own right. the The tournament should be reported on, like in terms of what's going on on the field in terms of what it means to the the nations that are competing. Um, so I think those are the, the main things that I'd like to see progress. But I think, I feel, I feel quite positive. I think Morocco was a big step. I feel confident that in, in the Women's World Cup, we'll start to see um, possibly the Super Falcons, possibly Morocco uh, progressing a bit further. But yeah, I think there are still obstacles to overcome. I think obviously when most of your talent is leaving the continent, that's always going to be a slight problem. Um, I also think that might have a bearing on on some of the AFCON results. Uh, it was mentioned in a, a podcast we did yesterday actually about Morocco that potentially it's a weakness of their team that they have so many players playing in Europe because you come back to Africa and the climate's a bit different. Some of the pitches are a bit different. So maybe that can have an effect. But yeah, I think... I do. I, I always feel the only way is up. You see, some of the talent that's been dominating Europe. Victor Osimhen at the minute. Mo Salah is just up there with the best players to ever play in the Premier League. Uh, as much as I don't like to admit as an Arsenal fan, he is a he's definitely you know a historic Premier League player. One that will never be forgotten. Riyad Mahrez, who obviously recently left the Premier League as well, just absolute magician. And I think, yeah, I feel positive. I think I think we should all feel quite positive uh about the fact that African football will continue to grow and has has really fought for its place in world football since
1: since nineteen sixty. I think we should feel positive. As continents go, do you think they're in a better in sort of better shape than than Asia and than North America and then than Oceania to try and sort of be the ones to to breach that sort of Top two tier of of Europe and South America.
0: I would say so. I, I would say so. I think you have some some great great teams uh, in Asia. Uh, Japan are always really strong. South Korea have some really good players. But I think, I mean, that's a whole whole another realm of discussion to get into Asian football and and perhaps why that doesn't get the respect that it deserves as well. Um, but I would certainly view. I would certainly view a lot of African teams as as teams to watch over the next decade or two. Um, I, I I said it earlier, I wouldn't be shocked at all if an African nation won the World Cup in the next 20 years. And I think, yeah, it's something I'd like to see. And I think with, with
1: the players that we see at the minute, there's no reason it shouldn't happen. No, definitely. I think, Hopefully that's that's the way forward. And and I mean the more countries who perform better in the World Cup, the more exciting it'll be and and the better tournament it'll hopefully get. Um thank you, Johnny, so much for for joining me on the podcast today. It's been great having you and your insight. Yeah, thank you for having me on, Toby. Thank you all so much for listening and make sure you head over and follow us on social media. It's at Pitchside_Podcast on Instagram, Toby Reynolds 10 on TikTok and Toby underscore Reynolds 10 on Twitter. Head over to the Sports Gazette website to read articles from all of our pundits and writers here at the Sports Gazette, including Johnny's articles and AFCON archives, as well as all of our African Cup of Nations coverage. And with the tournament starting in just 10 days, you won't want to miss it. Make sure you like the podcast and give it a rating. It really helps. And make sure to join us next time on Pitchside.
0: Sports Social Podcast Network.